as uh, the kids are being dismissed, I would invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. As we conclude today our All for One series in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6, before we read, let's approach the Lord in prayer. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for songs of content that remind us of your amazing grace, that call us to sing to the King who's coming to reign, that cause us to recognize you as the King of all things, Lord of the universe the giver of good gifts, the conqueror over all evil. Lord, draw us in to your amazing grace, recognizing that your grace is given by you in your sovereignty, not earned by us. How could we ever earn your favor? Father, as we contemplate all of the pain, all of the brokenness in this world, and wonder sometimes, can it ever be redeemed? Can a garden grow out of this ground? Can the chaos of my life ever be made right? Remind us that you make beautiful things out of even dust like we are. As you work your great purpose through your church, Father, cause us to glorify you without reservation, with our mind, our soul, our heart, our strength. Now as we enter into this time of study in your word, speak beyond your servant's faltering tongue, Lord. Protect us from any voice that exalts itself above and against the knowledge of you. That we might hear from your spirit as we encounter you in your word. draw us in, change us. Let this not be a simple met mental exercise, but make us doers of the word and not hearers only. We pray this in the name of the one who gave himself for us, your son Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 6. Excuse me while I adjust. Ephesians chapter 6, we'll be looking at Paul's final words in this letter. Your heading in your Bible may say final greetings or something along that line. As Paul is concluding his thoughts, it's easy for us to think we're already done because the content is all before this. But let's read what he says. 
starting with verse 21. Tychicus, the dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you everything so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. I'm sending him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage you. Peace be to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. As we read Paul's words here, Paul closes his letter with this beautiful benediction uh, that would be easy for us to just pass over. Maybe because we see it as, as no more than a formality, just a regular goodbye, just kind of signing off. Or maybe because somewhere inside, peace, love, faith, and grace seem to us like rather pie-in-the-sky kind of thoughts that bear little resemblance to our reality. We live in a society where anxiety is epidemic, where the clamor for diversity is loud, and yet we can't tolerate disagreement. Where we lament the crass, mean-spirited world around us with crass, mean-spirited comments. Two images from my younger years stand out in my mind. Many more images, but two that are specifically in my mind growing up in the 70s. I'm drawn to the image of angry protesters screaming and swearing while carrying signs about peace and love. And I think specifically to the late 70s and into the 80s in my teenage years, so-called Christians carrying Jesus loves you signs while damning to hell the sinners around them. Claiming to care about life while blowing up abortion clinics. Now, to be sure, these are extreme examples, but we see these things, these hypocrisies. Maybe there are other images that stand out to you. There are so many new ones each day. Countless more that you can think of, and the hypocrisy has only gotten worse in our day. So the blessing of peace and love rings ironic, fake, or meaningless. It's easy for us to look past this greeting when we don't really see peace and love faith and grace very often in the world around us. Even among Christians, it seems. It seems that we don't take these ideas as seriously as we should. And perhaps we overlook this because we also don't take our greetings and, and uh, salutations very seriously. We come up to people and say, hey, how you doing? But we don't care how you're doing. And we respond with, hey, how you doing? We didn't even wait for an answer. And we don't offer an answer. 
Or at best, we'll get, hey, what's up? Oh, nothing. How you doing? Good. And we move on as if we had a conversation. Paul here is invested as we see this play out. But I can't help reading this without wondering, how can we experience peace and love? You may be wondering, your heart may be wondering, even if you don't consciously ask the question, is it even possible? Well, grace, peace, love with faith, these are major themes in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Turn all the way back to the beginning of the letter in Ephesians chapter 1. If we're looking at at his closing, let's look now at his opening, his initial greeting. Ephesians 1, starting with verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people, if you have an older translation or older rendering, it may say to the saints, to God's saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Notice verse 2, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we see back at the end again, peace to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus with an undying love. Paul here has come full circle in his letter. Grace is the foundation of everything that, is, that he is saying. It's, it's the cause, it's the source of everything in this letter. It's God sovereignly doing for us what we do not and cannot deserve. We cannot earn God's favor. And yet God gives us his favor. He chooses us. He adopts us. He predestines us to be conformed to the likeness of Christ. He settles our future. He seals us with his Holy Spirit. He takes dead people and makes them alive. This is his grace. It's the foundation of the letter. The theme of the letter is peace. It's his purpose here. It's God's great overarching story, peace, reconciliation, oneness, shalom, this harmony that is just throughout the entire letter, the unifying grace of God brings peace. And love is the result, the experience of grace. The presence of peace leads us to love. It comes from love. It leads to love. And we see that faith then is the means. It's the strength, the connection. As we are working through this story, um, Stacy, can you come first? As we are working through this, this letter, the story here, there is an overarching theme that we need to develop. And as Paul is doing this, 
we're going to see this play out. Now notice in verse 21, he starts with a very personal impact here. Paul is invested in the church at Ephesus. He cares deeply for the people, even those he's not met. And so he doesn't have quite as personal a greeting in this letter as he does in some others. Ephesus is this uh, great uh, metropolitan or cosmopolitan town. Thank you very much. Uh, and as he is addressing them, he was with them, leading them, guiding them for three years, but now he's been away. And as would happen in the second city of the empire, this, this massive hub, people come and go. So the church has grown. It started back in the day with 12 men when it started. And in this great city, it has grown to where Paul doesn't know all the people there. And yet his heart is still with them. And he sends Tychicus personally. As he is sending Tychicus, there's a reason for it. He refers to him as a dear brother and a faithful servant in the Lord. He is from there, but he's serving with Paul. He's been accompanying him. And now that Paul is imprisoned, Tychicus is still with him. And he's delivering this letter to Ephesus to be read in the surrounding churches. So there's a, a circular letter aspect to it. He's also delivering the letter to the Colossian church, which is not that far away. And he says, he's going to tell you everything. Paul doesn't want to muddy up the letter here with all of the personal details. But notice he's put some personal connection through it, right? Go back to, uh, to chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse 15, he says, For this reason, looking at all that God has done in, in uh, the believers, he says, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Notice the personal connection here. He's giving thanks for them. He's praying for them. He wants them to grow. I keep asking that the God of our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm sorry, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for those who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Turn ahead to chapter 3. Paul connects with them personally again saying in verse 7, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me 
through the working of His power, although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery for which ages past for which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things his intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our lord in him and through faith in him we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, notice this in verse 13, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Paul is pointing out to them. He's suffering on behalf of the church, and it is to the glory of all who are in the church that he does so. So don't be discouraged by the fact, fact that things appear to be going badly. For this reason, verse 14, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of His glorious riches He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I'm going to read that part again because it's central to what we're seeing in His closing. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, love with faith, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And as Paul's praying for them, this personal prayer, I'm praying this for you, that God would move in you, that he would open your eyes to how great this love is that Christ has for us. He can't help just bursting into this doxology that follows. It's sort of like, his pen is expressing what his tongue can't because he's there in the prison and he's trying to write. And if the Ephesians could hear him, he, he's, he wants to just shout it. And all of what he's praying for them then overflows into this doxology in which he says, verse 20, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. This overflow of emotional response to God, rooted in the nature of who He is, just flows out of Paul's understanding of God and his investment in the people to whom he is writing. So when he says to them, I'm sending Tychicus to you so that you can know and that he might encourage you, it's because of his love for them and his need for them to understand what's really going on, no matter what it might seem like on the outside. And then lastly, right before this greeting in chapter 6, as he's been 
talk, <coughs> excuse me, talking about God's equipment for our spiritual battle. He finishes, as we saw last week, with the idea of prayer as our means of engaging in the battle. And he says, and pray, verse 18, in the Spirit on all occasions and with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert. And always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. But notice what he says next in verses 19 and 20. Again, keep in mind this personal connection that he's got with them. And he's saying here in verse 19, pray also for me that whenever I speak, Paul's the one that introduced them to the gospel, right? Paul's preaching to all these churches. He's preaching all over Asia Minor and eventually into Europe. He's standing before governors and kings, regardless of the cost. Now he's chained to a soldier and he's preaching to him. And he says, pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. Chapter 3, he said that was God's gift to him, was allowing him the privilege of bringing the mystery of the gospel to the Gentiles. Now he's saying, pray that I won't chicken out. Pray that God will fill me with the right things to say, that I will fearlessly make known the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. There's, there's a humility, there's a vulnerability, as Paul is saying to them, look, uh, you might look down on me for this. I don't care. I need your prayer. I covet your prayer because it's easy for me and my flesh to chicken out. You might think I'm strong. You might think I'm a warrior, but I'm just a child. I'm a child of God. And sometimes the wounds hurt and I go running home when I fall down. And I don't want to be a coward. I don't want to back down. But you need to know that without your prayer support, it would be easy for me to fall behind. It would be easy for me to soft pedal when facing the cost. We don't humble ourselves and make ourselves vulnerable to people we're not invested in. So Paul, as he sends Tychicus to them, is saying, look, I care enough about you that I'm going to send my personal friend who is already known to you. He's come from you. You're familiar with him. And I'm going to have him share with you everything that's going on. So while you know that I'm in chains and you know that I've already told you God is working through this and I am not ashamed of these chains and I don't want you to be ashamed of these chains. I don't want you to be discouraged by thinking that God's, God's plan is failing somehow. I also have fears, and I need you to pray for me. But I'm going to send Mr. T to you so that you can be encouraged by knowing that not only am I suffering, but in the process of this suffering, God's word is going forward. And the suffering is for your glory. So don't be discouraged, be encouraged. And as I am chained, I get to not only share the words of the gospel, but I get to demonstrate the character of grace that Christ 
demonstrated to me by showing love to those who are imprisoning me. All this is wrapped up in just that simple note of saying, I'm sending my guy so he can lift you up. Peace to the brothers and sisters. Love with faith from God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Peace is the theme. Love is the result. Faith is the apprehension of it. Notice that all of it comes from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he closes with this great verse, Grace be to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying, your other translations may see, incorruptible, or I really like a word that I saw someone else say, undecaying. It captures the picture, an undecaying love. So what do we do with all this? If he's got this much packed into what appears to be just a simple goodbye, we don't want to overlook it because while it's easy for us to pass it off as unnecessary, it's just an extra. All the content was before. I think Paul was serious when he told Timothy that every word of Scripture is God-breathed and useful. So if every word of Scripture is God-breathed and useful, then that would include this. Because Peter called Paul's writings Scripture. Notice this. This is our core reality for today. We'll start to work through these ideas. Peace and love are byproducts of trusting God's glorious grace in Christ. Peace and love are byproducts of trusting God's glorious grace in Christ. If you're taking notes, I would encourage you to mark this down. Grace is what God does for us in Christ. Grace is what God does for us in Christ. This is the power of this letter. If we see in chapter 1, from the very beginning, as Paul says he's writing as an apostle of Jesus Christ, it's by the will of God. Paul didn't put in an application and go through an interview process. He was on the opposite path. And God reached in and snatched him up. Literally, Jesus showed up to him, struck him down, struck him blind, and changed everything about his life, making him a special messenger. We use the word apostle for that. It was the will of God. It was God's grace. Paul didn't deserve it. You heard earlier, he said, I'm the least of all. Of everybody, I'm the one. I persecuted the church. How could God make me an apostle? It's His grace. Grace is what God does for us in Christ. Notice this. God owes us nothing, but in Christ He gives us everything. God owes us nothing, but in Christ He gives us everything. My grandfather, whenever he would hear one of his kids or grandkids talking about what you might deserve would always be quick to point out that what you deserve is hell. Everything else is grace. Everything else 
is grace. The fact that you got up this morning is grace. The fact that you're breathing right now is grace. You are using God's breath. You're borrowing God's breath. If you use it for His purposes, then it is blessed. If you use it for yours, ignoring God's purposes, then you are stealing His breath. Everything comes from Him. Notice in Ephesians 1, verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. God owes us nothing, but in Christ He gives us everything. Every possible blessing. Everything that lasts beyond this life. He gives us the blessing of placing us in the same position as Jesus Himself. Every spiritual blessing given to us by God's grace in Christ. Notice also, Jesus paid our debt, not because we deserved it, but specifically because we never could. Jesus paid our debt, not because we deserved it, but specifically because we never could. Now, in Ephesians chapter 2, if you look uh, just over the other side of the page here, he points out in 2 verse 1, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. How much can a dead person do? What, what does a dead person do to earn not being dead? Nothing, because they're dead. We're not sick in our sin. We are dead in our sin. Because we are dead in our sin, there's nothing that we can do to make God impressed. He's God after all. How small would God have to be for anything you and I can do to impress Him? On top of that, as Paul, same writer, writes to the Roman church in Romans chapter 8, the mind governed by the flesh, that's all of us apart from Christ, is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God, nor can it submit to God. So the only way possible for us to be saved, to be made right, to be stolen out of God's wrath and placed into this position as His child is His grace. There is nothing else. Because if it's up to you and to me, we would never choose Him. This is why so many are drawn to spirituality or even perhaps to religion and yet not to Christ. Not to God's word because we want to create God in our image. We love the idea of God when it's helpful to us. And yet the word of God gives us a picture that starts by condemning us and then says, I love you, and I want to save you. Jesus paid our debt, not because we deserved it, but specifically because we never could. This is what grace has done. What God has done for us in Christ. All grace. All the time. Notice, lastly, 
All that God does for us is solely by His choice and for His glory. All that God does for us is solely by His choice and for His glory. Again in chapter 1. In addition to blessing us, grace, with every, heaven, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ. Verse 4 says, For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will to the praise of His glorious grace which He has freely given us in the one He loves. The power of grace is that it is, in fact, grace. The only way for it to be grace, the only way for us to be chosen and adopted and predestined to sonship is the fact that it comes from God apart from us, apart from our works, apart even from our ability to choose Him, because again, we're dead. We're spiritually dead, and our hard hearts would not, could not choose Him, nor could we please Him. And this is to the praise of His glorious grace. All that God does for us is solely by His choice and for His glory. Grace is what God does for us in Christ. So if we see grace, this final greeting that He gives, as the the power, the source, the cause, the foundation of everything that He's saying in this letter, God is doing all the doing that takes place in the first three chapters of Ephesians. Paul's preaching, it's a gift from God. It's not just the ability, but the privilege of being allowed to. The mystery of the gospel being made known to us when the prophets of the Old Testament did not fully understand it. They were prophesying it and they didn't get it. They didn't see it. We're told elsewhere that even angels long to look into these things. So God is giving Paul insight that even the angels didn't get. And he's making it clear to us as well. All of this is from God. Grace is what God does for us in Christ. Notice also, peace is what God does in us in Christ. Peace is what God does in us in Christ. Now, peace is the theme of this letter. Sometimes he uses the word peace, but even when it's not the word peace, we can see the concepts of oneness and reconciliation. Peace occurs when disruptions and discord are removed. Peace occurs when disruptions and discord are removed. We can think of it very quickly and easily as the cessation of hostilities, right? We have, a, we have a, a, an armistice that calls two warring parties to stop warring, and we call that peace. But there are other kinds of peace. We have interpersonal peace. We have peace within ourselves. And most importantly, peace with God. All of these things at their root are removing what disrupts the way things are supposed to go. 
It's removing what the discord, what is, uh, what is against or contrary to the way it's meant to be. When the band is playing up here and there are multiple instruments and multiple voices, they're not always playing the same notes. And that's a beautiful thing when those notes work together in harmony. And it's a difficult thing when they don't. Stacy, I know, is grinning as I say this because sometimes you can hear it when all of a sudden you get that wrong note. Like, oh man, that didn't feel right. There's a, there's a discord that, that takes place. In the same way, when we fix that note and create a beautiful harmony, that same thing in the rest of the areas of our lives, in our interpersonal relationships, in what's going on inside of us, in, in, in nations and families, when we remove the discord, when we remove the disruption, we have a reconciliation, a oneness, a peace. The Hebrew word for this is shalom, and it's a richer, fuller word than what we often think of as peace. It's when everything is set right, the wrong is gone, and everything is together in, in, in sort of a, if I can use the term without, being, without crossing fields here, a singularity. It, it comes together in a way that expresses the oneness of God through your experience. This is shalom. It has to do with health and prosperity and, and, and any number of things that go along with that, but specifically with being connected and reconciled to God. So as we see this, this peace occurring when the disruption and discords are removed. It's the fruit of reconciliation. It's what God does in us in Christ. God's great purpose is reconciling all things to himself under his kingdom rule in Christ. We see that in Ephesians 1.10. We see that in Ephesians 1.23. That Christ is the king. God is bringing all things together under him. And the church is the first part of that. As he calls us out and makes us his own, he gives us grace, and we are now in him, his own temple. Living stones built together into a single house where God manifests his glory in the unity of the church. So there are three areas of peace that we want to see here. In Christ, we are reconciled to God. Reconciled to God. Notice in uh, verse 7. Uh, chapter 1, verse 7, that is. In Him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Don't miss out on what he says after that. In accordance with the riches of God's grace, grace that he lavished on us. Whatever word you may have in your translation needs to have that overwhelming, overflowing, unbelievable connotation. 
He's just pouring it out. God's not stingy with His grace. He's lavishing His grace on us in Christ. In Him we have redemption through His blood. We have been reconciled to God. Notice also that in Christ we are reconciled to one another. Reconciled to one another. Look at chapter 2, verses 17 to 22. Uh, Verse 17, He came, Christ came, and preached peace to you who were far away, peace to you who were near. For through Him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of His household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. In Christ, we are reconciled to one another. When God unites us to Christ... The transitive property of that is that we are united to one another. I'm united to Christ. You're united to Christ. We're all in this together. And we are being built up into one temple. The church. The church is central. Absolutely crucial and central to God's agenda for all of creation. As He is bringing all things together under His kingdom rule in Christ, He does so through His chosen people, the church. And as we demonstrate the unity that He has placed us in, being united together with Christ, (coughs) pardon me, this reconciliation we have to one another gives us peace with other people. We are brought together. We've been reconciled to God. We've been made right with Him, so we have peace with God. Now we have a peace from God in that we are reconciled to one another. Lastly, notice that we are reconciled to our purpose. Reconciled to our purpose. In other words, there is a wholeness, there is a oneness, a shalom within us as who we are, becomes more and more lined up with how we live. Perhaps I should reverse that in saying it. As how we live becomes more and more a reflection of who we are in Christ. Turn to chapter 4, verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. We're not saved by works, but if we are saved, it shows up in our works. We look like daddy. This is how saving faith works in us. Not perfectly, but increasingly. Raise your hand if you look perfectly like Jesus. Anybody? Okay. I know I don't. My family can tell you that very clearly. But progressively. I look more like Jesus today than I did 10 years ago. 
And hopefully, by God's grace, I'll look more like Jesus this morning than I did last night. It's not a, it's not a smooth and easy road. We don't all have this steady incline where we just go straight to, straight to heaven and we look perfectly like Jesus. No, it's a bumpy road. And sometimes we fall down. But Daddy holds our hand. And we follow Him. And we go along understanding that He in Christ has reconciled us to our purpose in life. In chapter 4, He gives us a bunch of instructions as to how to live that life worthy. Jump ahead to chapter 5. The first couple of verses there. 5, 1 and 2. Follow God's example, therefore. I prefer the older rendering. Be imitators of God. As dearly loved children. Notice you're not earning it. You are dearly loved children. Therefore, walk in daddy's footsteps. And walk in the way of love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Where does, where does our turmoil inside come from? It's that disruption, that discord inside of us. When what we know to be right and what we live in our lives doesn't match up, we lack peace. We have an inner struggle when I know that I'm not doing what I was meant to do. Sometimes I don't recognize it. Sometimes I don't know why it's that way. But within my being, my inner self, maybe not my conscious self, but my inner self recognizes, man, you ain't right. Sometimes my wife says, man, you ain't right. And the reality of it is, if God is pulling me on this track and I'm constantly off to the side doing my own thing, I'm always going to feel the, the, the conflict between where I'm walking and where God has called me to walk. And the more I align my thinking with the truth of God's word, and I learn to see reality from God's perspective. And I begin to align my footsteps with His as one who follows God's example as a dearly loved son or daughter of the King. The more peace I will experience in my daily life. Don't miss out on the reality, however, that God has already given you that peace. He has already removed the disruption, the discord. He has already reconciled you to himself in Christ. And because he has reconciled him to himself, you are reconciled to those who are also united to Christ, who may have previously in your flesh been seen as enemies. The divisions that we have in life fall away when our focus is on Christ when we are aligning our thinking to the truth of God's word. When I allow, align my thinking to the truth of God's word, then I begin to align my walking, my living to the truth of God's word. And the more I command my thoughts to obey Christ, this is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10.5, the more I take my thoughts captive and I force them, I make them obey the word of God. That's not natural to me. 
I got the world, the flesh, and the devil all pulling me away. But I take my thoughts and I say, you know what? I don't care what my feelings are telling me. I don't care what my circumstances are telling me. Thought you will obey Christ. I will embrace the truth of God's word. When I do that, then my actions will follow my thoughts. And when my actions follow my thoughts, over time, that becomes a habit which shapes my character. And when I do that consistently over time, my feelings begin to change. If I let my feelings lead, I'm in trouble. But if I take charge of my thoughts, when my feelings trail behind, they will begin to align with the reality of life, not my perception of my circumstances. Peace is what God does in us in Christ, in whom we are reconciled to God, to one another, and to our purpose. We no longer live for the things of the flesh. We live for the purposes of God. And He in His great purpose of bringing all things together under His kingdom rule in Christ, does so through us as we surrender to that purpose. Grace is what God does for us in Christ. Peace is what God does in us in Christ. Notice, love is what God does through us in Christ. Now, the grace is what empowers everything. That, that's the driving force. Peace is what happens when we receive that grace and we recognize now that God has set us right. And there's a oneness, a reconciliation. And because of those things, the fruit that it produces in us is love. Love is what God does through us in Christ. Notice this, because He has blessed us, we bless others. We start out with praising Him for His blessing. He does this. We didn't earn it. We have no right to think that we are somehow better than anybody else, that, that we deserve God's blessings. Absolutely not. But because we've received His blessings by grace, we give His blessings out to others. We do good things because God has done good things for us. Secondly, notice, because He has forgiven us, we forgive others. Because He has forgiven us, we forgive others. There are so many places where we're commanded to forgive one another. But I think one of the places that is most important for us to see is in Matthew chapter 6, when we see the Lord's Prayer. And we pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And Jesus, after giving this model prayer, saying this is, this is the way you should approach prayer. Not, not an incantation. Don't, it's not just recite this all the time. There's nothing wrong with reciting it, but don't think it's some formula that you're supposed to do. It's a relationship-based communication with God. But he follows that up by saying, because of this relationship with God, as you're communicating with Him, asking for forgiveness, recognize that if you don't forgive others, He's not forgiving you. Because you're not walking in the relationship. God has forgiven us in Christ. Therefore, if we have received that, that grace, that mercy from God, 
We've placed our hope and our trust in Jesus' work on the cross, in His resurrection, in the Spirit giving us life. Because of that, knowing that we deserved that death, who has wronged you more than we've wronged Christ? Any of you been crucified? I know I haven't. We throw terms around like crucified a lot. But we haven't been. No one has wronged me anywhere near the way my sin has wronged Christ. Because He is perfect, innocent, holy, and just. And I know the guy in the mirror, and that ain't him. So when you wrong me, it's one sinner wronging another sinner. When I wrong God, it's a creation thumbing its nose at its creator. And that's a whole other level. So if God forgave me in Christ, how can I not, how dare I not forgive that person who did that horrible thing to me? Now someone might say, you don't know how horrible it was. You haven't been through what I've been through. And you're probably right. Maybe I haven't. There are lots of horrific things in this sinful, wretched world that I've never experienced. Someone else could say the same thing about your suffering, that yours pales in comparison to theirs, and they'd probably be right. At some point, you, you reach that pinnacle of suffering. But the pinnacle of our injustice can never approach even the slightest sin against the holy God who created us. We need to recognize that. Because the grace we've been given in Christ is so much greater than we ever have begun to imagine. Therefore, because He has forgiven us, we forgive others. If I do not forgive others, I need to take a serious look at whether I've actually experienced the grace of God. Do I really get it? Because if I get it, how can I let myself hold someone else's sin against them knowing how Christ forgave me? Lastly here under love, love is what God does through us in Christ. Because He has blessed us, we bless others. Because He's forgiven us, we forgive others. Because we are united to Christ, we are united to one another. Because we are united to Christ, we are united to one another. As we saw earlier in, in uh, chapter 2, we all were separated from God. He draws a clear and specific line here between the Jew and the Gentile, those who were God's called people under the Old Covenant, and the Gentiles, the nations, those who are outside of the family. But elsewhere, specifically in Romans, he says Jew and Gentile alike are under sin. There, there's, no, there's nobody that's clean, right? Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The reality is all of us are in the same boat apart from God. And because of His grace to us in Christ, 
He makes that available to everyone. The difference, the only difference, the only dividing line, it's not your skin color, it's not your ethnicity, it's not what denomination you're from, it's not your, your economic class, it's not your education level. None of those things. None of those things matter at all. What matters is, are you in Christ or are you not? And if you're not, there's a very clear, simple way to join the family. Just trust him. Trust that God is who he says and does what he says he'll do. Because we're united to Christ, we are united to one another. This trust idea, this has to do with faith. Notice this, faith is how we receive the grace, peace, and love that God gives us in Christ. Faith is how we receive the grace, peace, and love that God gives us in Christ. As Paul closes this letter with peace to the brothers and sisters, we get that, right? We, we, we're, we're family, peace fits, we got a basic idea. And love with faith, what does that mean? Now, the New Living Translation is sort of an anomaly among the major translations, translates it love with faithfulness. And I don't think that's incorrect, but it's interesting that all the other major translations render it simply love with faith. The Amplified Bible gives a little more flavor to it. So what does it mean, love with faith? There is a rootedness in faith. Faith is how we take hold of His grace. It's how we take hold of the fruit of that grace, the peace and love. So if we're going to have love with faith, the love is governed by, rooted in, and driven by the faith. Mark this. Faith is a gift of God exercised by choice. Faith is a gift of God exercised by choice. How do we know it's a gift of God? Well, he tells us in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It's by grace that you're saved through faith. And this not of yourselves. It's the gift of God that no one should boast. Okay, so I get it. Faith is something that God gives me. So then, should I just sit around and pray that God will give me faith? No, your ability to pray is part of the faith that God has given you. And it's not that you shouldn't pray for faith, but you shouldn't just pray for faith. It is a gift of God. It takes an act of God to take your stone, sinful heart and turn it to a heart of flesh. It was a miracle that he did that with mine. It's a miracle every time he does it with any of us because we are hard-hearted dead people. Stones and corpses are not a picture of people who are trying to follow God. No, instead, God reaches in, places a new heart in, a heart that can see what the sinful heart could not see. A heart that's able to say, I don't deserve this grace, but I want it. Lord, I want you. And I don't deserve you, but I'm coming on my knees with open hands. Father, save me. I receive your gift in Jesus Christ. I can't do that until my heart is changed. 
but I have to do it. There are those out there who would teach that, you know, if you are the elect, if you have been chosen by God, then it's settled, it's done, that's it, right? There's nothing you can do about it. That's not biblical either. God is sovereign, but man is responsible. So we have to make a choice to believe. And yet that choice still comes from God. If you want to sort it out, ask Him when you get there. It's not an either or, it's a both and. Faith is a gift from God, but I must exercise it by choice. Notice this. We've talked about this before. Faith is seeing reality from God's perspective, aligning our thoughts to the truth of God's Word. Faith is really, at its root, nothing more or less than this. Seeing reality from God's perspective, aligning our thoughts to the truth of God's Word. What does that mean? So in Hebrews 11, verse 1, We're told that faith is being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we don't see. And then the writer of Hebrews goes on to list all these Old Testament saints, the the patriarchs and matriarchs of the faith. And as as he lists these Old Testament saints, he kind of draws them all out as examples of great faith, and he culminates that by saying, none of these received the promise when they left the planet. They went home to the Lord still looking forward in hope to something they had not yet received. They were looking forward to Christ and had not found the fulfillment of that yet. You and I on the backside of this get to see the cross and we look forward to His return and the transformation of everything. So faith is holding on to that sure and certain hope, that expectation of a sure thing that we have not yet realized. It has not yet come to fruition, but it is locked in as if it already happened. In fact, in in, uh, 123 here in Ephesians, when Paul describes how God has already placed everything under Christ's feet, he's doing that same thing. It's a sure and certain thing. Has it come to its fullness, to its fruition yet? No, that's coming with His return when the wicked will be judged and the saints will be home and we will rule with Him. And all things will be made right. And all of the wickedness, all the corruption, everything that is is, wrong in in the creation itself, in the climate, in the economy, all of it will be made right because it will all be burned up and the new heavens and earth will reestablish the original created order. We look forward to that with a certainty that is so sure that it's like it has already happened. No matter what it feels like, no matter what you see on the news, no matter what you read on social media, no matter what you see in your personal life daily, faith is saying, I know God's word is true, period. I know it in my knower and nothing will change that. That's faith. But I don't feel faithful. It doesn't matter. I choose to believe the truth. 
If you've been married for more than five minutes, you know that there are sometimes you don't feel like being married, right? So, n- nice save there, Keith. Heather's, Heather's saying, amen, brother. <laughs> In reality, for every one of us, our emotions betray us. I can be strong and courageous until I get really sick. And suddenly, when I say really sick as a dude, I mean like I have a cold, right? Everybody knows about the man cold, right? We get it. And it overwhelms me. And all of a sudden, the world is a dark, bleak, hopeless place. And all of the great fine points of theology that I love to preach, it's like, Lord, take me home now. I can't handle it anymore. Meanwhile, people are being persecuted for their faith around the world. Our feelings betray us. Faith says, no matter what my feelings say, no matter what the devil whispers in my ear, I will reject the lie and embrace the truth, period. Even when I don't see it. Even when everything around me and every other person in my society says, no, God is not what you think. The word of God can't be trusted. The church cannot be embraced. They're just a bunch of hypocrites. Faith says, "Uh uh-uh. I'm standing on God's word. I will embrace the church in all of its glory and in all of its flaws because I am married to Christ and we are together His bride. Faith sees beyond what's going on. So love with faith is a faith that perseveres and endures because it sees beyond the moment. So I'm able to love you when you're unlovable the way Christ loves me when I'm unlovable because I see past my feelings and the circumstances to the reality of God. And as I choose to connect the reality of God to the realities of my everyday experience, I am no longer enslaved by the temporary. I'm set free to live in light of eternity. Faith takes the long view. Faith is how we receive the grace, peace, and love that God gives us in Christ. It's a gift of God, but it's exercised by choice. It's seeing reality from God's perspective, aligning our thoughts to the truth of God's word. Our memory verse today is from 1 John 4.11. There were uh, no memory verses that I looked at that were going to capture what I wanted without being a lot longer than you wanted to memorize in a week. This is a simple one. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If we have, by faith, seen the truth of God's grace, humbled ourselves and said, Lord, I'm a sinner. I'm separated from you, but I believe that you meant it when you offered me life in your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, I want you to save me. I want you to make me new. I want you to make beautiful things out of the dust of my life by your amazing grace. When that happens in us, 
We've been reconciled to God. And therefore, we're connected with this body, the church, the dwelling of God, a house united in Christ. And because of that, because we have been given love by God, we are able to give love from God so that others might experience that love of God and give glory to Him. That's why we're here. Peace and love are byproducts of trusting God's glorious grace in Christ. What a fitting way for Paul to end his letter. What a fitting way for us to end our series in studying this letter. Where we learned that all of creation is for this one God. So that we, because this one living God gave His only Son for all of us, we can now be all together for Him. United. No longer separated from God. No longer separated from one another. Christ has removed the hostility. He's torn down the dividing wall between us and God and between us and one another so that we might live for Him as God carries out His purpose in all of creation, bringing all things together under His kingdom rule in Christ, beginning with the church, that we might display His glory in our unity according to His grace. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You. We thank You for this immeasurable, unspeakable grace. Thank you for choosing us, for adopting us, for predestining us to sonship that we might be fully your children, holy and dearly loved, fully accepted, not striving to earn your pleasure, Lord, but living out of the grace that you've lavished upon us, longing to see you smile. Make us more like Jesus today. Make us more like him individually, that we might not ever be divided from one another because our eyes are on him. And your grace, so amazing flowing over us and through us and from us to one another. Oh, Father, may all glory and power and honor and praise be to your name through Christ and in the church, both now and forever. Amen.